ultimately it's it's about people and understanding how people are working with with machines, how people are interfacing with the world. Welcome to Manufacturing Happy Hour, the podcast where we get real about the latest trends and technologies impacting modern manufacturers. Manufacturing Happy Hour. Each week, we interview industry experts that are at the top of their craft and give you the tools, tactics and strategies you need to take your career and your business to the next level. And now your host, Chris Lukey. Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome to episode 86. Today, we're talking about electrical engineering. We're talking about community building. We're talking about firefighting. What's with the variety? Well, our guest today is Michael Rinch. He's the president and CEO of Hedgehog Technologies, an engineering consulting firm based in British Columbia. Now, this team specializes in electrical engineering, mechanical engineering, and risk management. And I actually got introduced to Michael and his team at an amusement and attractions industry conference not too long ago. But that is just one of the industries they're focused in. So before I go any further, probably makes sense for me to tell you three things you can expect from this episode to put some structure around this. First, we talk about Mike's time as a firefighter and what he learned from that experience that's helped him with his engineering consulting firm. Second, and you'll see what I mean by this a bit later, but Mike's background as an electrical engineer feeds right into the values with which he and his team run their business. We'll discuss how those values are reflected in the type of work Hedgehog pursues, and we'll get into some unique aspects of the history of Vancouver, British Columbia, and how it's created an ecosystem uniquely suited to serve the rides and entertainment industry and beyond. Finally, we'll get into a few more of Mike's work experiences and hobbies that I think will give you a bit more insight into his overall character before we wrap the interview. After this episode, if you want to learn more, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 86 for the show notes for this episode. And if you're liking the show, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Spotify. You can actually get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. I just learned not too long ago that Spotify has their own rating system. But hey, for the Spotify listeners out there, if you can leave us a five-star rating on there, there should be a button right at the top of the podcast subscription page for Spotify. Just hit that, give it a five stars, helps us on that platform, just like you helped us for the longest time on the Apple Podcast platform. Anyway, before we get too far, I think we need to get you introduced to Michael Rinch and start today's conversation. Okay, Mike, if if you could pick any spot for today's conversation, if we were in person, where would that be? Paint the picture. You know, my favorite place or one of my favorite cities in the world is Hong Kong. And I would love to be sitting either on one of those seaside restaurants, little island called Lama Island, Sandy Beach, boats of all ages and sizes zooming around and you and I sitting there eating dim sum and having beers. Uh, that would be a, uh, a great time to cover this nice warm air flowing through us because it's all subtropical there and uh, busy, busy stuff going on. I feel like that's a perfect setting. So let's say we've got, um, you know, some rice lagers there. We're sitting there, sun shining. I feel like this is a perfect over drinks conversation to start things off with. You know, tell me about how you got the name Hedgehog for an engineering consulting firm. Yeah, well, 
you know, a lot of people ask us that question. Why, why did we, why did you call the company Hedgehog and not one of those other thousand generic names that, that every other consulting company is called. And the reason we, uh, it, it got called Hedgehog actually is, uh, I used to be a forest firefighter years ago. And during those days, it was a, it was a dirty job. It was a job where you had to, <clears throat> you needed a team that you could rely on. It was hard work. Sometimes you worked all night. Um, sometimes you were fighting between you and like a subdivision of homes. And, and without you and your team working hard together, you would, you would, that, that would, that fire could burn over these people's homes. So that's, that was the job. And, but I was one of the smallest people on the, the crew. And uh, to earn my keep, I was, uh, I, I realized I needed to work extra hard. And, and because of that, I was, I was always falling on the ground. And for some reason, I was always touching my face. Um, and at the end of the day, I was black with soot. I mean, you couldn't be dirtier than I ever was. And uh, the, the, the fellows on my team, they all told me that I uh, sounded like and I looked like a hedgehog when I worked because I was always grunting and groveling around in the dirt and like I was looking for grubs or something. So, uh, so when, I, when it came to creating the company Hedgehog Technologies, we, um, we said, what is the most memorable moment? And to me, the most memorable moment was these hardworking days where you're working collaboratively with a strong, high-performing team and you're accountable for the work you do. And, and that's, that's force for our fighting. Like, um, so when I say hedgehog, every time I say that word, I think about those days back then. And, and that's what I tell, uh, tell the staff in the company to, on how to remember what it is to be a, a, a great hedgehog technologies consulting engineer. A great drinking story. And I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of themes that tie together throughout this discussion. But knowing that you were a forest firefighter, I have to ask, what's one of the major lessons that sticks out from that experience that helps you leading a company today? The, 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 big, the big lesson is if you want a high-performing team, you need to trust each other, you need to be accountable, you need to be hardworking group. And if you're not accountable and collaborative um, to each other, you're never going to be a great team. And so everything we do is really about that creating this collaborative force. How does everyone work together and, and trust each other that everyone's accountable for getting the work done as we planned? And I might be jumping ahead a couple of steps here, but I feel like going from forest fighting to engineering consulting is, is kind of a leap, right? Like what, what sparked you to start Hedgehog? And were there other things along that journey that got you there? Well, I, I, I've always been into electrical engineering. That's been, um, that's been a passion of mine. In fact, back in, back in the day, um, my mom actually used to, uh, I don't know, she just, she saw it that I had this interest in taking things apart. I took everything apart. And so she went across the street and uh, well, just down the block, the street, and there was this um, TV repair shop. And she used to tell them, Hey, I got this kid who loves taking stuff apart. What can you do? And they used to throw away TVs that were that you couldn't repair, you know, those big old heavy ones they used to have. And they said, well, you yeah. can have those. Maybe he'll take those apart. So every week 
there'd be a new TV at the end of our driveway. And I was, you know, grade five or six. And I would wheel it out in my little red wagon, load up a TV and wheel it back into the garage. And I, I, I take it apart. And <clears throat> that was really the beginnings of my connection with, with uh, electricity and engineering and wondering how things worked. I just, I just loved trying to figure out how these things could work. And, and, and I like that you brought up the electrical engineering background, right? Because you've got a PhD in electrical engineering. And, and I remember when we talked before this conversation, you know, you were talking about how like you, you were on the quest to become the best, right? And over time that you realized, you know, consulting is like really a people first business, right? So, you know, was there a moment where you like where you realized, hey, the focus you know, is on the people, right? Was it a gradual process or was there a spark that kind of brought that up? Yeah, that's, that's, I mean, that's a really interesting part that the thing, like, uh, I don't know, what is it, a uh, moment that happened in my life, which was, as I said, I was, I was taking apart these TVs. I loved electronics. I wanted to know how everything worked. I just was starving and I thought, okay, well, what's the meaning of life? Well, the meaning of life for me is to figure out how everything works. I need to know how the world works. And I'm going to do everything I can to learn. So I started learning on how electricity works, how how you can build things and how infrastructure works. And you have to understand the physical properties and limitations of the world in order to get there. So I was I was I was working through all all that. And it, as it as a person whose mission is to find out how the world works, I find myself doing graduate studies and ended up doing a, a Ph.D. in electrical engineering. And, you know, in the end, when I, when I got done and I've been working on all these projects that are safety critical controls where human lives are at risk, like roller coasters, um, what you realize is, is, is ultimately it's, it's about people and understanding how people are working with, with machines, how people are interfacing with the world. And unless you have a real good understanding of how the people are working within the infrastructure of this world, you really can't design great things. And so this is what got us to our, our um, this uh, business hedgehog is that we're real, we're really a people first business because that's how you get the best results. And, and I hope this next question helps kind of paint the picture even more there, right? Because you've mentioned there are four core values at your company. ACDC. And, and I'm just looking at my notes. You've mentioned a couple of them, but maybe take us through ACDC really quickly. And I've got some questions after that. Yeah. Well, ACDC, as you guys can guess, is is we we started with that because it's, you know, AC and DC electricity. Those are the two types of electricity and uh, easy mm -hmm. to remember for electrical engineers. So we like that. And but really within that, there's some powerful statements is first is is we believe in these complex systems working with people that you can't just manage based on a, a hundreds of little rules. You have to manage your team by values. And if something goes wrong or you're upset or, or something doesn't make sense, it's usually someone has violated a value that you believe is true. So our team developed a set of values based on this ACDC concept, which is the first is accountable. So when we say accountable, we say we're accountable to the lights turn on. So when we come onto a project, we're there from the twinkle in the person's eye to the to the hour that that thing is running, and we don't leave, uh, and we're there we're there till the end. 
And the second is C, which stands for collaborative. So we are a collaborative, tight-knit team. Um, in fact, almost everyone uh, we hire will come to me eventually and say, man, you just share everything. And I tell them, I say, that's the only way you can understand what's really going on and do your job properly unless we are collaboratively working and honest with each other and honest with our clients. Uh, then there's the DC part, which is uh, we believe in diversity. So there's, there's and, and I'll call it two, two flavors of diversity. One is uh, we say our differences make us stronger. So uh, we're lucky in Vancouver. It's quite, a, quite an international city. There's people from all over the place. And we have almost, there's no repeated staff member, as in everyone's from a different country, everyone's from a different culture. And we find that these people who have grown up in, uh, we'll say everything from a, a privileged uh, sort of normal life to a war-torn countries, they come with different perspectives. And those different perspectives create insight into designs that we're working on that really matter. So if you have everyone's the same, you end up with this term called groupthink, which I'm, uh, I'm sure you've heard of, Chris, is, is where everyone just gets addicted to thinking the same thing. But if you have um, a group, a, a larger group uh, of people, they come up with, with different ideas. In fact, I have a, a special, um, a, a great example of that that happened this Christmas is a, in uh, our last value is community builders. But I'm going to bring back to diversity before I talk about community builders is that we were going out to visit the Brownies, which are the uh, young girl guides. Um, and they, they, uh, we were going to tell them about, about uh, electrical engineers. And the Brownie leaders, she said to me is, do you have any women in your, in your company? And I said, well, of course I do. Um, and she says, maybe you could come and, and bring something for the kids to learn about, about uh, electrical engineering. So I said, great. So I bought, I went to the electrical store and I bought all these like kits and they were going to like have been build circuits and soldering and all these things. I had this great idea. And when I presented it to the women, two women in my office, they looked at me and said, there's no girl will like that. That is stupid. And they totally transformed it to this little craft where we built this Christmas tree and we had little LED lights and all the girls, when, when they brought it there and the, the two uh, women in our office presented this, this idea, the kids went silent and they got to work and an hour and a half went by and, and the kids didn't want to leave and they wanted to keep working on it. And I thought, geez, there you go. Diversity. My idea from a, from a white male's point of view, not so good. And all I did had to do is ask the women what these girls want and uh, what a great idea, what a great thing. And, and it, I mean, that's just a simple thing, but if you add that into large scale designs, uh, this, um, this matters. And so that's, that's really comes into our last value. So that's diversity and the last is community builders. And we believe in building building communities. And that, and that is really everything we do from how we engage our clients. Like I said, it's a people first business. So we want to be, we want to get to know the clients. We want to understand your story, why this is a problem, what happened, how you're going to use it, uh, all the way to, we, we, we were working in a, an indigenous community making, um, we, we came to this indigenous community in Northern Canada. They wanted to get off um, diesel powered electricity. So we, we helped them. They didn't know how to design solar farms. Uh, so we helped them design a solar farm for the community. And we, uh, 
But instead of just building it and leaving, we worked within their culture, how they want to make it and how they want to operate it, and then helped them within their cultural um, ways operate and own and use and repair that that solar farm. And now they're running it themselves. So it was a real, um, I felt it was a real win for creating jobs and training and, and enabling a group uh, to, to live a, a better life. I love both of those stories you just shared at the end of there, right? Because uh, the manufacturers that listen to this show understand that diversity is an imperative for the future success of any company. In fact, we've had an episode probably, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 episodes ago that was titled, you know, hire a diverse workforce or risk going out of business, right? And I think your story illustrates that perfectly, right? Um, the other aspect, talking about community building, you know, you've worked with indigenous communities in Ontario, right? And you talk about, hey, you know, making the training such that it's applicable to those communities, not that it's, you know, not such that it's like, hey, this is the way I've always done it. This is the way it should be done. Love both of those examples. I think those are really transferable to the manufacturing leaders, whether they're working inside a factory or servicing a, a number of customers like yourself. I, I have another question on, on top of that, kind of from that project you uh, did in Thunder Bay. And by the way, I'll have a link in the show notes to that project for anyone that wants to learn more on that. But, you know, how do you pick the projects you work on, right? I feel like your, your range of expertise is so diverse from solar farms in Ontario to amusement parks and amusement rides. What do you look for when you're trying to find a project where you know is a right fit for you? Uh, yeah, well, that's, that's, a, um, that's interesting because really the, it, the business started with with what uh, people what what we could do and what what I ended up doing early days was working in um, cold ocean research I was up in the Arctic doing um, sampling ice samples I was trying to measure resonance properties of, of large ice bodies in fact we were trying to measure the resonance of icebergs it was my research mm. topic and I was up in these harsh environments and and really learning to build in, in system areas where it's just not an easy environment. You can't just solder something up or build a little circuit and it'll work. It just, in fact, my first designs they just they all cracked and broke, and and so I had to keep uh, working on that. So the 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 angle was if, if we go back to the beginning is I wanted to discover something new, and uh, I will share with you a secret mission of mine is I, I really want to build a rocket ship. And uh, I, <laughs> I just think space is amazing. I, I want to go and see the world and, and beyond. And I figured to get good enough to do that kind of stuff, we got to do the hard projects. So people came to us with projects to build submarines, they had picked projects to build these solar farms in, in the northern Canada where everything and anything could go wrong. We, we had snowstorms, we had blizzards we had uh ships that wouldn't sail we had we had to move up um uh solar panels on ice roads uh there was a there was an, a, a community had a fight with the other community over the ice roads and they blockaded it and then the ice roads would melt we couldn't get product up there like these are these these projects are complicated and hard to be successful on and requires very very careful planning and so uh we got we developed a real um keen interest in how do you do the hard projects and so now people come to us and they don't come to us with 
with uh, straightforward stuff. They come to us with problems. They usually start with, I really don't know how to start here. Can you, uh, can you just get us started? Because we just don't even know where to go. And that's, that's where we start with those things. We'll be right back, right after a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by IME West. This event is the ultimate intersection of advanced manufacturing technology. From med tech and manufacturing design to automation technology and plastics, suppliers from every part of the product lifecycle are about to converge upon Anaheim, California on April 12th through 14th, 2022. Now, I spent over five years working in the automation industry on the West Coast, and this was always the show to attend. Whether you're looking to connect with technology leaders, buyers, decision makers, you name it, all these types of folks will be there looking for manufacturing solutions. But IME West not only brings together top suppliers, it also features a variety of educational programs designed for engineers and C-suite leaders alike. It's the spot to connect with the leading experts and take on the challenges and opportunities facing this industry together. Personally, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be there broadcasting live from the event. And if you want to join us, head to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to learn more and register today. Hope to see you in Anaheim on April 12th through 14th. In the meantime, let's get back to today's episode. I love the little backstory that... uh wanting to build a rocket ship is kind of one of your motivations to get you to take on the hard projects. I cannot lie. I want to build a rocket ship. I've wanted to build a rocket ship my whole life. I was going to say, it sounds like this isn't just an in vogue thing right now, given that every billionaire out there seems to be trying to go to space. Sounds like you've had this on your radar for a while. They they did beat me to it, I I admit. And it sounds like I'm tagging on that group, but it it really... (laughs) It really, it really is. I, th- I think if you're into discovery and you really yeah. want to discover new things, I think many people end up at a rocket ship because uh, <laughs> it, it just, it's just the logical, like, where, what are we doing here? Right. Let's, let's explore the world. Let's figure this, let's figure this out. If, if, if the world is, is governed by a set of physical rules, let's solve those. It's still the final frontier, right? Like I consider when I go up to the upper peninsula in Michigan a long way that a way maybe similar to the same way of going up to northern Ontario, right? But uh, no, that's uh, it's certainly there's still a lot to explore out there. So there's plenty of time for you to reach that goal and uncover some some new things, even if Jeff Bezos and those guys have already been shooting rockets up there. (laughs) (laughs) So, So there's some other interesting things. So for context, you and I met this year at IAPA, the big amusement industry conference down, I should say last year now, it was the end of 2021. We met at IAPA and, and an interesting fact I learned in some of our pre-conversations and, and from that event is that there's a lot of the amusement industry based up there, right? And you were starting to share some backstory that you think it's because there were, I think there were three major submarine companies based up in British Columbia. Is that correct? Can you tell us more about this? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Vancouver is, not everyone knows this, but it's a submarine hub of the world or one of the submarine hubs Hmm. of the world. And it started, I think about 40 years ago. And there were three companies, a company, they all started about the same time, which is one called Can Dive, which built this thing called the Newt Suit. 
there's international submarine engineering who is focused on autonomous operated submarines. And then there was a last one called Atlantis submarine, which many of you may have even ridden an Atlantis submarine, which is if you've been to Hawaii or Mexico and, or Thailand and taken a, uh, a submarine ride with a, like I say, I think they have the 20 person submarines, uh, that's an Atlantis submarine. So they were made in Vancouver, designed and made in Vancouver. So the, these, uh, th this industry came out and it was pretty high-end engineering work. And the, the, uh, I got involved, I guess, 25 years ago with International Submarine where Paul Allen, uh, who's the founder of Microsoft, asked International Submarine to, to design and build him a 10-person all-electric pleasure sub that was rated to go deeper than US military submarines. Like it was an exploration submarine, not a, I call it a pleasure sub because it went on his yacht, but it was like a deep sea exploration machine. And uh, it was my first uh, experience working with this group of high performing engineers because the CanDive, which are now called OceanWorks a team in, and um, International Submarine collaborated together to build this. So I got to meet everyone and they were really good at designing things that were complicated and dangerous. And just kind of an interesting angle to this is when you do what's called a risk assessment uh, on a mm -hmm. design, you kind of find out like, oh, if this happens, there might be a fire and someone will get their hand burned and here's how we'll mitigate that. Or they could trip and so we'll like make the floor smoother or less or more gritty so they don't slip and all these things. That's kind of your typical risk assessment. When you build a submarine, you're like, Oh, there's a short circuit. Oh, the hole, it, it melted a hole through the penetrator wall. Water sprays in and everyone dies. Uh, there's a fire and the, the chamber fills with smoke and everyone dies. And the, the hatch was left not tight enough. Water sprays in and everyone dies. Like it's just like everything ends with and everyone dies. And, and it sounded a little bit... Um, Sounds a little repetitive, but it, in true fact, it, it's very risky business and designing out and per, and limiting uh, risk on these on these and making them use safe for humans is is tricky. And as a result, you ended up with this family of engineers who are very good at highly complex systems, and which that spun into how you and I met, which is at IAPA, uh, another uh, uh, machine that's as complicated as submarines is uh, roller coasters and other types of amusement rides that are computer controlled. You put people inside them. If something goes wrong, which is like for a roller coaster, the primary risk is collision to the next one in front of it. How do you ensure that doesn't happen? How do you ensure people don't fall out? Uh, you really have to have first the ability to not panic when you start these designs. And the second is, is have a process and understanding that there's a way to get to the end where you can say this is a safe ride and, and people can ride on this. And uh, so that's that's really the, the the way that Vancouver developed its, its I believe it's my version of how it developed its expertise and talent for doing uh, the amusements industry. Because when the submarine industry was less busy, everyone just fell into the amusements and they're doing the same thing, hmm. really. Interesting, right? I feel like don't panic, have a process would be the great slogan for like some engineering company out there, right? If no one's using that yet. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I don't know if you've read that book. Um, it's called uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, yep. It's a classic yep. book, but you remember the first page, it says, don't panic, uh, which is yep. 
uh, the rule number one for successful uh, uh, space travel. For, for those watching the video, if I could only reach over to my bookshelf right now, because the Douglas Adams book, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, is just staring me in the face right now. So very familiar with that. Yes, good good advice for space travel. I love how we keep weaving these themes together, right? We're back at rocket ships now. Um, you know, we, we got a little more time left, right? And and I've got, the, the, by the way, for anyone, if, if, if anyone wants to look up Michael Rinch on the internet, you'll find some really interesting things that he's done. So it's a great Google search for the listeners. I've got some questions about that coming up. But before we get there, um, is there anything you wish I would have asked you around hedgehog yet and the things you're doing in the industry well we're, we're we're just trying to make people's complex visions of practical reality and through that we're we're a consulting engineering company we do primarily electromechanical design and usually it's complex systems either in the rides industry marine industrial uh and we just lo love renewable uh work it's tricky to do it's easy to put solar panels on your roof but it's tricky to make your community 100 renewable because, of course, it's dark at night, so if you have solar panels, uh, they won't work at night. So they, there's, a, there's a trick to getting your, your community as, as renewable as possible, and, and we, we spend a lot of time helping people do that. I love it. And kind of back to one of your themes earlier, diversity, just you know everything you're doing, the diversity of work you do, the diversity of thought you have, the diversity of people you work with. It's just really impressive seeing, seeing and learning more about your operation. Um, I got a couple more fun questions for you before we wrap up. In addition to being a firefighter, I also noticed you had a job at a fish factory at one point. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. I, I, I have to ask, may, maybe tell us a bit about that experience, but I'm interested if you learned anything from one of your earliest experiences that you can reflect on now that you're much more experienced. Uh, well, for all you fish factory workers out there, I, I, uh, I learned that it's a really hard job. <laughs> and uh, we were in a salmon processing and smoking uh, fish factory. And um, I got that as probably one of my first summer jobs. And we, uh, uh, we, we would gut fish and I was the bottom of the totem pole. So that the top, top of the totem pole, when the fish came in, the bosses cut the fillets. Like they personally cut every fillet. There's two of them, um, uh, John and Jim. And John and Jim cut the fillets. And then as you went down the totem pole, you either got to cut the fin or you got to cut the tail, or you got to pull out the guts. Like there was different layers, but the bottom was the gut boy, and I ran around <laughs> the tables uh, picking up guts uh, off the floor as they flicked them, and they would sometimes, as a joke, flick them in my face, and uh, and laugh their heads off. And I would fill this barrel full of guts, where I would then load onto the uh, forklift which was the sole source of joy i had in this job was driving the forklift because it was like driving a race car and i would drive the forklift full of guts out to the back where the wasps lived and uh i would drop off the container and try to not get stung when i when i dropped that off and then once every three weeks someone had to clean the chimney because it was a smoking facility and of course gut boy and chimney sweep uh, I would be actually that was probably my first introduction to being very dirty. Uh, I would go and clean the uh, the chimney and this recirculating tube, which was full of tar. 
And um, oh. I mean, I, I could see why no one on this earth would want to do that job. And it was, and, and all I knew as I had to save my honor and never, I, I, I didn't realize, but I had this superpower was I don't give up very easy. And so I just sat there digging out tar and soot out of this thing. And, um, and then once I was done that, it was back to guts in the barrel. And it, <laughs> it was a good, I, I, I mean, I got paid well. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, gut boy sounds like one of the least glamorous ways you could describe a job. First of all, I mean, you're a regular Mike Rowe. Like you've been, do you've done these dirty jobs. You've been a firefighter. You've been in a fish factory. It's also had a nice Pacific Northwest theme to this interview, right? Yep. Talked about, talked about the woods, talked about submarines. Now we're talking about not necessarily the throwing fish like they do in Seattle, but certainly salmon big uh big part of the world up there yep. well okay since i last since i just asked you about one of let's say maybe one of your lower experiences then let's talk about something you love before we wrap things up yes cheese making oh yeah how, how did you get into that okay so easy peasy uh step one go to france have a baguette glass of wine and eat their cheeses there and you think dang this is good and i actually after that my, my first trip to france i came home and I said, I'm going to learn to make bread. So I made bread. Bread's easy. Um, there's a trick to it, but bread's easy. And I'm like, but I can do bread and cheese. I can learn cheese. And so I got to work and I, I got to trying to learn how to make cheese. So to make bread, you, you got to remember about four steps, right? You know, ingredients, let it rise, hot oven, keep it steamed. Like it, it's pretty straightforward. Cheese is about 12 steps. And um, mm. I bought these cheese books and then I realized there's something called the cheese forum where a bunch of other cheese uh, nerds hang out and describe all their, their, their challenges. But the big challenge I had was trying to create France in a bar fridge. And um, because I had to create a France cave in a bar fridge, which you need 90% humidity, 24 hours a day at five Celsius. I'm not sure what that is in Fahrenheit. It's kind of chilly, but not fro freezing. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, a cool, damp cave. That's what you want to make. But mm -hmm. a, a bar fridge yeah. doesn't do that very well because it has this plate that gets really cold and dehumidifies the whole thing. So the humidity goes to basically zero and then goes up to 100%. And so my cheese was rotting. So, like, you know, normally you want cheese to rot so it'll get this nice white fuzz on it. Like if you're making a brie, mm -hmm. it gets all fuzzy white. Mm -hmm. Well, there's like black when the black comes that cheese is not a good cheese and uh mm. it really so what i did is i got um like uh, a control system i built my own control system that controlled how the temperature was managed it managed the humidity it sprayed humidity in and kept it at like 85 percent to 92 percent was the best i could do so that kept uh, that kept, that was the first thing. The other was I had to, when you make cheese, you have to kind of cook it up to uh, 30 mm -hmm. Celsius, which is like, I don't know, 80 Fahrenheit or something. Um, but you had to, to ramp up the temperature slowly or your cheese gets bitter. And I couldn't do that either. And, uh, so I, I, um, I once again got this computer controller so I could do ramp temperature ramp rates. And, uh, so I learned, I got to do electrical engineering, which I love of course, and then got to make cheese. Um, it took 14 attempts to get brie, uh, the brie right. And it's six weeks between each recipe. And uh, th the first time I made brie, I mean, 
you know, it's supposed to look kind of like a hockey puck, a white, yeah. a white hockey puck. It was more like a white ball because it was so full of gas. <laughs> and I stuck a knife into it and it went, and this horrible smell came out. And I, I was like, everything in my body told me, don't eat this. It's bad. But I was like, no, no, it's homemade. That's what homemade stuff tastes like. It's way better. Natural, right? And uh, it was bad. I, I, it's... I shouldn't have lived, but I, I made it. But I knew that was a bad one. It's hard to get anything right on, on your first try. And cheese sounds like one of the harder things. I can just picture like almost a cartoon where you like poke the cheese and it just deflates it. I mean, it sounds like that was the scenario. That is, it, it is exactly. If you can imagine that, it literally did that. And it let a little noise and just went kind yeah. of like flat. And that was definitely the wrong way. And that's when I discovered the cheese form where people are, mm. everyone, you know, every beginner does that to their cheese well it sounds like you've learned a lot along the way i can tell you're an electrical engineer just throughout this conversation right from cheese to everything we discussed the applications hedgehog technologies works on this has been a, a great discussion from start to finish i've also got to imagine in the spirit of manufacturing happy hour you might know a thing or two about wine and cheese pairings as well uh, i sure do yeah and uh i'd, I'd say I got to say my favorite pairing, uh, if you're going to do it is, I mean, you want, you want your classic French baguette, of course, that's a good one. And it should be fresh because fresh, you know, even day old baguettes aren't that good. You want a fresh baguette, but mm -hmm. my, uh, I gotta say my favorite is the, uh, Cambazzola, which is a brie with blue in it. And you have that with like a pair that with a light Pinot Noir that makes a, uh, that makes for a nice, you know, afternoon uh, happy hour, I would call that. That would make a good happy hour. Well, of course, today we're in Hong Kong at a uh, dim sum drinking beer today. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I was going to say, you, you've presented probably more variety than anyone has on this show before in terms of uh, in terms of our options. So now this this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate appreciate you jumping on the show, Mike. As a final question, what's the best way to connect with you and Hedgehog Technologies? Oh yeah, thanks. The uh, if you if you want to hear more about us, you can either go to www.hedgehogtech.com. Um, you can Google Hedgehog Technologies Engineering. That'll probably come up as uh, some interesting things, and you can see all the uh, the neat projects. And you can send us a message there. There's a info at hedgehogtech.com, and um, we're always listening. Excellent. I will have links to all of those in the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com. And whether we're on the shores of Hong Kong or sipping wine and eating cheese in British Columbia, Michael, I just want to thank you for jumping on today's show. Chris, thank you for having me. It's, uh, it's fun to share these stories and, and uh, share them with, uh, with everyone. Appreciate you doing it. Cheers. All right, all right, all right. Thank you for listening. Thank you to Michael and Hedgehog team for making this episode possible. Also, shout out to my friend and longtime colleague, Linda, for the introduction that got me introduced to this awesome team. If you liked what you heard, make sure to go to the show notes page at manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 86. 
There are plenty of links to resources over there, including hedgehogtech.com, links to some of the specific projects we talked about, as well as an article on Mike's cheese making habits. So if you want to have some fun, head on over to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash 86. Before we wrap up, I do want to thank our sponsors this week, IME West. And gosh, that conference is right around the corner. If you're listening to this right at the release of this podcast, that conference is taking place in Anaheim April 12th through 14th, 2022. And it is one of the most diverse manufacturing conferences you'll find, whether you're in med tech, whether you're in plastics, whether you're in automation, there is an event there for you. I'm going to be out there speaking. I'm excited to head back out there. I used to go to ATX West, uh, which is the automation conference that's part of this broader event when I was living out in San Francisco. And if you want to attend as well, go to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash IME West to register today. One final call to action. If you didn't do this at the start, if you could go over to Spotify, if you are a Spotify listener, you can get there by going to manufacturinghappyhour.com slash Spotify. Would love it if you could leave a five-star rating on the podcast page for Manufacturing Happy Hour. Anyway, hope to have you back here next week. We got more coming your way. Stay innovative. Stay thirsty. Thanks, as always, for listening. We'll catch you again next week. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Manufacturing Happy Hour, powered by the Industrial Network.